Among the most amazing prophecies in the Old Testament is that which is found in the prophet Isaiah when he predicts the decree of King Cyrus of the Persians that he would free the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. Three points make this prophecy especially so amazing. The Babylonian captivity ended in 538 BC. Isaiah's predictions were made in the year 688 BC, clearly 150 years before King Cyrus lived. Isaiah calls the king by name, as we heard in today's first reading, even though Cyrus was not yet born, nor was he of the ruling class or dynasty or family when he became king. A second point is King Cyrus the Great, also known as Cyrus II or Cyrus the Elder, he reigned over Persia between 539 and 530 BC. He was a pagan king, not a Jew. King Cyrus, mentioned more than 30 times in the Bible, issued the decree in 538, releasing the Jewish people from their forced captivity, allowing them then to return to Jerusalem and the very way of life of their ancestors. This is a prophecy that is also mentioned in the second book of Chronicles. The king actively assisted the Jews in their rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He sent back to Jerusalem with the Jews the sacred vessels of the temple which had been plundered at the start of the captivity in Babylon. He likewise sent a considerable sum of money with the Jews with which they were to buy building materials for the temple and its rebuilding. His generosity and cooperation with God's plan of salvation helped to restore the temple worship practices and the sacrifices which had languished during the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. A third point is that he was a pagan, a pagan whom God used to help fulfill a most important Old Testament prophecy uttered from the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, who spoke of Cyrus as a shepherd, one who was appointed and entrusted by God for the care of his sheep, Israel. God called Cyrus by name, though the king himself knew not the God of Israel, nor the promise of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah speaks with God's relationship of King Cyrus as on par with the relationship of the prophets and the kings of Israel, that people the world over would know that there is one God, no Lord God except Israel's God.
The person of King Cyrus can be seen in the light and in the line of the other shepherds that God placed over his people. The judges, the prophets, the priests of old, as well as the apostles and their successors, the bishops, in our time. In the gospel today, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers, and the doctors of the law come to Jesus and they pose a seemingly simple question to him. Is it lawful, according to the law of God in the Torah and in the Decalogue, to pay the census tax imposed by the Romans on the Jews? This is not a question about taxation. It's a fundamental question about religion and belief in God. Now, the census tax was tribute paid to the Roman emperor. Roman money had to be used. Jewish coins were not accepted. They were useless for payment of this tax. Roman coins had the image of the emperor Caesar engraved on them. For the Jews, using a Roman coin directly violates the first commandment. The Jew is defiled by having one, by touching one, or by using one for any reason whatsoever. For the Jews, using the Roman coin with the image of the emperor, which was engraved on it, was idolatry and apostasy. It signified allegiance to the one whose image the coin contained, Caesar, thereby having and worshiping strange and alien gods before the Lord God. Isaiah, excuse me, the book of Exodus chapter 20 and chapter 5 of the book of Deuteronomy state clearly this prohibition of the Ten Commandments. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. You shall not have other gods beside me. You shall not cause idols for yourselves in the shape of anything in the sky, above the earth, or on below the earth, or the waters on the earth. You shall not bow down before them or worship them. In using Roman coins, then, to pay the census tax, or for anything whatsoever, it was trusting in Caesar, not in God. It was an act or a sin of false worship and of disobedience before God. Now, remember, the religious leaders of the Jews who co-opted the fidelity to the covenant and their service of God for political gain, these are the ones who are posing the question to Jesus about the census tax and its payment. They did it in order to entrap him. It did not matter what Jesus would say, for no matter what he said, they were to use it against him to discredit him before the people and before the Romans. They intended to force Jesus to say something that they might use against him, and so put him at odds with the people and the Romans and ultimately put him to death. In response, 
Jesus sidesteps this trap and the question of the lawfulness of the tax and its means of payment. Those who use the coin willingly, that is Caesar's coin, should repay Caesar in kind. And Jesus goes further. Render or give to God what belongs to God. What do we have? What have we received? What are we that has not been given us or been received by us from the hand of God? Jesus raises the debate and he refocuses the bait, the debate to a new level. Those who filled with hypocrisy about the tax and its payment in respect to the law of God, should they be concerned rather with repaying God for what we are and what we have received from God? Life, love, one another, faith, our salvation, God's grace. When tempted in the desert by Satan at the start of his public ministry, Jesus rebuked and rebuffed the tempter with his allurements. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In times then of temptation, may we always keep our eyes and hearts fixed intently on God, serving him and him alone. May we, like King Cyrus, cooperate with the divine will of God for the salvation of our families and of the world. And may we at all times and in all circumstances render unto God what is God's, that is everything, all that we are and all that we have.